Since the Puritans got a shock When they landed on Plymouth Rock If today Any shock they should try to stand Instead of landing on Plymouth Rock Plymouth Rock of stocking was looked on as something shocking but now god knows anything goes good authors too who once knew better words now only use four letter words writing prose anything goes hello and welcome to broadway radios this week on broadway for sunday january 8th 2023 my name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. With us today, we have a very special guest. Jonathan Groff is joining us. Broadway fans know Jonathan from... You know, we haven't talked about this in my life. We have to chat about in my life for a second. <laughs> Spring Awakening. <laughs> no, and, <laughs> and uh, of course, Hamilton uh, off-Broadway. We saw Jonathan recently in Little Shop of Horrors and uh, small little movies like um, The Matrix Resurrections and uh, <laughs> Frozen. Uh, Frozen and yeah. some other things like that. Jonathan, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us on Broadway Radio. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm sitting here with my coffee in my apartment. So happy to talk to you all. Aren't you nice? Excellent. So you are keeping yourself busy these days down at New York Theater Workshop, where uh, you're doing that little uh, skip merrily we roll along, which is uh, uh, already announced a transfer to Broadway from the, the uh, small room at the New York Theater Workshop to something to be announced later uh, in 2023. So... Tell us, how long have you been engaged with Merrily, and, and have you uh, loved it over the years? <laughs> the first time I was really introduced to it was through the documentary, um, The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened, mm -hmm. that Lonnie Price directed and came, I think it came out in like 2016, 2017, somewhere around there, like five years ago. And I was on the floor. I mean, I just was so moved by that documentary. I had heard the music from the show, but I didn't really know the show that well until, until that, but still had never seen a production until they asked me to join this group um, about a year ago. It was, it was January 23rd of 2022. <laughs> Uh, and I was in a film club over COVID and uh, one of the film club members is Jim. We're actually having our film club reunion tomorrow night. Um, but one of the, one of the film club members is Jim Carnahan. And he said, you know, we're talking about you for this 
revival of Merrily, Do You Know It? And so I watched the uh, Maria's production from about 10 years oh, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is on, the whole thing is on YouTube. Um, uh, you can see the entire production. So I watched that and was just completely floored by it. And um, lines from the show were just jumping out and grabbing me and the music and the the cast over there and just the production as a whole was just so mind-blowing and so i i immediately said yes wow mm. and so what's it been like uh just, <laughs> uh to you know to do something that that was not a commercial success when it originally appeared on broadway uh to becoming such a, a cult hit within the Broadway ranks and now seeing it uh, to blossom and get out of the nest. Yeah, it's been, I, I like, uh, truly when I, I share the dressing room with, with Daniel Radcliffe and Reg Rogers, and when I take my pants off and put them on the, the hanger, I just want to take them back off and put them back on and go out and do the show again. It is... <laughs> 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 it is so much fun and the the group that we've got over there that maria put together is just everybody just believes in the show so much and and feels i think really lucky to be doing it and feeling really honored to be doing it for the reasons that you stated um it's such a beloved show and We've got people from all over the world coming to see us off Broadway at, at the New York Theater Workshop, fans, mm -hmm. deep, deep, deep fans of the show. And to get to perform the show in New York um, for New Yorkers and for fans of the show is really amazing. And just like the, the, the story of the show and the, the characters and the relationships and you know, having lived in New York uh, with, you know, a lot of people in the cast for almost about 20 years, we've got this um, relationship to the material that feels really personal. I think it's a really personal show for the people doing it. And I think it's a personal show for the audience watching it. And, you know, we keep asking the audience, how did you get there from here? Uh -huh. um, and, and I think it, it makes us all the cast and the audience included sort of reflect on our own lives. And it, it becomes a, a really meaningful or can become a really meaningful experience. And even Dan and Lindsay and I made the connection that in, in 2008, I was doing spring awakening. He was making his Broadway debut in Equus and she was making her Broadway debut in Greece. Mm. And so we, even as like a troop of of actors have kind of come up together. And so to be telling this story in reverse with what feels like our, our sort of like peer community group is, is really, really special. I know this is, unless I'm missing something, this is your first full Sondheim show. You may have yeah. sung some of his songs in the past, but uh, did you, have you ever had, did you ever have any interaction with him? I met him once and uh, it was in 2010. I was doing uh, in London, I was doing a production of Death Trap and right. they were doing Into the Woods at Regent's Park. And I went to the first performance and he was there. And uh, and I met him while we were waiting for the cast to come out. Uh, 
and he was so warm and nice and i was just like completely starstruck and uh he had come to see spring awakening but i hadn't um i hadn't met him then and he came to see hamilton and it's funny just yesterday at the stage door uh at the uh at merrily a woman told me that when i went to see a strange loop off broadway um that Sondheim was also in the audience. She was like, were you with Sondheim when you went to see A Strange Loop? Because I was there and you both were there. I was like, oh man, I wish I was there with Sondheim. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just met him that one time um, in, in London. Well, Jonathan, if they, uh, if they ever do company with a, a male lead again, that would will. be a role for you. Jonathan, there was a... a... Uh, a selfie of uh, you and Lindsay and Dan uh, in rehearsal that was oh, very popular yeah. online. Uh, we've included it on our show notes here so that folks can take a look at it. It it looks like you took it of the three of you in rehearsal, and it it reminds me of the three characters at the beginning or slash end of the show. It's hard to mm-hmm. see. It, it, <laughs> it, early in the timeline when the three of you are so young and hopeful. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what was the rehearsal process like uh, in developing this? It was really um, extraordinary. Um, everybody, everybody felt like I, I really again at those two words, lucky and honored to be diving into this material. And we had a creative team that had done the show ten years before in London and knew it so well, and. Maria Friedman, our director, has has performed a lot of Sondheim mm-hmm. and was very close to him uh, personally. He he was the godfather of one of her sons. And so she has this um, and she had played Mary before in the 90s in London. And and, you know, essentially when she staged this show 10 years ago, um, so he came to see it at the at the chocolate factory Sondheim did and loved it and then was there with them when they were transferring it to the West End. So she knew she's just like this this epic um, sort of endless bottomless source of knowledge. And and she really she talked to just I just learned so much from her about about him and about the show and about his writing and about his lyrics. And we all were our experience was so elevated by her not deep, deep knowledge of him. And, you know, she she would talk a lot about how, um, you know, people say that his his writing isn't emotional um, and and she finds that he really leaves space for the actors to bring their own interpretation to the lyrics. The lyrics are so complex and um, evocative and he leaves space uh, for the artist to, to meet them there. And she also talks about a lot about how Sondheim, even though he, he has passed and isn't there is the smartest person in the room. (laughs) So, So she says, you know, you can, you can fight that, uh, and you try and try and go to war with his brain in this material or or you can just um, let go and and bring your own humanity. She, she basically said, you know, all we all we can do here is bring our own humanity to it. That's what he's left space for. 
because he's smarter than everybody. So just, just bring your heart and your soul to it and let the show take you where it's going to take you. And I have to say, even, you know, we're about two months into our run, we're finishing our off-Broadway run here in two weeks. And I have never, uh, like you said, never have done a full Sondheim production before. And it is, it's, it's like going to psychotherapy or something. <laughs> it is, it is just endlessly fascinating, endlessly challenging. And, and I've never felt so alive moment to moment in a, in a piece before. And, and I think a lot of that is to do with, with him and, and the way that he writes. And it's just, I, I can't wait to get there every day and, and learn something new. I went to see the Maria uh, Maria's London production when it was one of the cinecasts that they had in theaters, movie oh, theaters yeah. here. Yes. On uh, I think it was at the AMC on 42nd Street. And both uh, Lonnie Price and Jim Walton were in the audience. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> From the original cast. I You know, I, it was like, they like, we have to see this. We can't miss this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That, I think that's the one I watched on YouTube. I think that's yes. the now that's, Yeah. Yeah. But the question becomes, though, um, they were growing up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, and, and you, you come from Mennonite, um, a Mennonite background. How did you get an interest in theater? Um, were your parents supportive of you doing it? They were. I mean, I. it's funny. I, I grew up, you know, playing pretend on my dad's horse farm. He's a trains and races horses for a living, still doing it in his in his late 60s. And um and so we would spend a lot of summers on the farm and playing dress up in the barn and put, I was Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. That was my first role at, I think, about four or five years old in in my dad's uh, barn uh, with my brother and our friends. So playing pretend was a huge, um, was a huge thing as a kid uh, on the farm. And then I got into acting in middle school, Mrs. Fisher cast mm-hmm. me in the middle school plays. And, uh, and that's when I, I sort of understood that playing pretend as a kid, you know, that, that acting is kind of the, at least for me, the exact same thing. Uh, then I became deeply <laughs> obsessed and there's a great community theater in, in, in Lancaster called the effort of performing arts center and a great regional theater called the Fulton opera house. And so I spent my time uh, as a teenager doing shows at those two theaters and then doing the, the high school theater and then coming to New York, you know, it's two and a half hours away. So I was, I was taking bus trips um, to New York. And then when I could drive a car, I was driving my friends up to see thoroughly modern Millie and uh, <laughs> is yeah, very, very connected to New York throughout my teenage years. And I think, you know, I, it was just, a great sense of joy, source of joy acting. And then also in, in, I was not out of the closet in, in high school. And I think that musical theater and theater in general was, was kind of a safe place for me to express myself and to communicate and to at least pretend to fall in love uh, if it was a romantic show. And uh, it was, it was sort of like a, a, a safe space to um yeah be be myself 
You know, I remember seeing you in the lobby of the public theater. You're doing a show with Olympia Dukakis and um, you were talking to her and she was talking to you. I was from afar watching it, though, but the intensity on your face and listening to her and I got the impression that really you were there to really pay attention and learn from her. And I'm wondering who um, have been the most important influences uh, in your life when it comes to acting. It's so crazy that you're talking about this because I was just, I think of her all the time and uh, RIP Olympia. And, uh, and we rehearsed that play, the singing forest that we did at the public. We rehearsed it in New York theater workshop on the stage. Huh which was just like kind of crazy to be back on that stage after doing the rehearsing that play in 2009. But just yesterday in my dressing room, Peter, it's so funny you mentioned that I had my bike helmet on my dressing room table and in my bike helmet was my wallet and my watch and my phone. And it was, we were just about to start the show and and my phone was there and it was, you know, I was looking at it for the, te- you know, looking at the text or something. And I was like, no. And I took my my helmet and I put it up on the shelf. And because starting with that play with Olympia. And this was before, I think, iPhones. So but, but there was still like texting uh, in 2009. <laughs> and I was like and I remember saying to myself in that rehearsal room, when we would be on a 10 minute break or something, Jonathan, don't you're in the room with a legend. Don't look at your phone. Like who cares? Put the phone away and go ask <laughs> Olympia a question. And I was, and I, and she had an, uh, she has an autobiography called ask me yeah. again tomorrow. That was, that was out of print that I got her to get me. And I, so I was, I was really like sucking up every moment I had with Olympia. And, and she also, I remember us walking down fourth street, uh, you know, on the way home from rehearsal. And she would like, I remember her bending over, uh, like looking at an ad on the side of a side of like a pole, like for a, for a concert or a cabaret or something. She was just, she was always noticing everything. She was so ultra present. And so I, Really, I felt that from her. And I'm even yesterday in the dressing room, I was like, oh, think about what it was like with Olympia. I'm putting my I'm in this dressing room with Reg and Dan. Like, let me talk to them and not and not look at my phone. So I'm constantly mm-hmm. reminding <laughs> of that. But uh influences, I mean, yes, she she was a big one working with her. Um, like uh Michael Mayer has been mm-hmm. uh, he's a sure. director of um spring awakening and directed me in little shop and uh was obsessed i was obsessed with him before i met him because of thoroughly modern millie Uh sort of a lifelong friend and guide and and shaper and uh i mean really honestly every every i take acting experiences um to grow and to change uh more than anything else and i would say uh, all i ever wanted you know, coming from Pennsylvania and and coming to New York to visit in high school and mm-hmm. seeing shows, all I ever wanted really was to just be a part of the New York theater community. And that 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 is probably the biggest influence as a whole on me, because when I'm not in a show, I'm I'm seeing shows. And even like on the days on the days off of rehearsal, when we were here, I was seeing like I saw um 
Man of No Importance on a, mm-hmm. a Saturday off, and I went to see Man of No Importance, the matinee, and then I saw Leopoldstadt that night, and I saw Top Dog Underdog on our last day off before we started performances, and just just even seeing theater in New York, um, whether or not I'm I'm working in it, it, to me is is the greatest source of inspiration. I still I still can't believe that I can get on my bike when I'm not working and go and see the greatest <laughs> ever live. I mean, that to me alone is just like such a source of inspiration and why I will always live here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you about in my life. Uh, <laughs> we have you as your uh, Broadway debut in this, uh, this play, uh, musical, excuse me. And <laughs> yeah, well, it's a play of music, something like that. Uh, and, but you were a swing and it wasn't uh, received uh, financially. It wasn't a uh, financial no, no, success. It uh, no. ran and closed pretty quickly. And that no. was your first experience. What, what, what did you think? I mean, you, how long before, uh, you know, what was your experience getting in my life and then it closing so quickly? It was, it was an incredible experience in so many ways. And I, I like part of, to, even to, to talk about inspiration, part of what, how I have learned, I never formally trained uh, as an actor or as a singer. And uh, I, I learn a lot from, from watching. And, uh, and even in the days when I was, in the ensemble of shows at the Fulton Opera House in Pennsylvania, I would, you know, I was, I was in the, I was a tap dancing cop in the second act of, of Pirates of Penzance, but I wasn't in the first act. So I would go up to the gallery seating and watch the first act every single day. Um, and in, in, in the King and I, I was in the ensemble of that and I would sit in the wings and I would watch the show from the wings every day. And when I did, the, the non-equity tour of the sound of music and I was Rolf, I would, I would stand in the wings and watch the show very often um, because I learned so much watching the actors perform for the audience and how it would change and grow and evolve and, or not. And, uh, and um, within my life, it, I mean, it, and also with Hamilton uh, as the King, I, I would, when we were off Broadway, I would stand in the VOM uh, and watch the show pretty much every day. And same thing on Broadway, I would go and stand in the box uh, behind the people and and watch the show as, as soon as I finished, you'll be back. Um, and within my life, it was this such a gift of an experience because I was a swing and an understudy. And so I got to watch rehearsals and watch the actors and then sit in the audience and and watch not only like not only was it poorly received but there there were people in the audience that like came to laugh at the show and like and it was it was shocking I I was like I couldn't believe I was on Broadway and and uh people were so uh could be so vicious in from the audience and and watching how the actors had to believe and yet the actors still had to believe in what they were doing eight times a week and how they that they everybody in that show got really close very fast because it was a it was an incredible bonding experience for them because all they had was each other and they had to 
come out and it was very it was a very dramatic show so they and they couldn't really phone it in so they really had to like um depend on each other and and Jessica Bovers and and Chris Hankey were playing out this you know big kind of love story and and David Turner had to do all this comedy and and they really they really um leaned into each other and and it, it ran, I mean, it ran longer than ever. We all thought it would just close on opening night, um, but they, it kept running. It ran for about, I think, like a month and a half or so. Mm-hmm. So it, it was like maybe over the course, it was like opened in October and closed in December. Um, and uh, and so it ended up going longer than many of us thought it would. And and for me, it was a great experience to watch that. And and I I got, I was auditioning for Spring Awakening as we were closing in my life and um and i part of the reason they were interested in me for spring awakening was that i had i was young and raw and untrained but i did have a broadway credit to my name which meant that i could you know show up potentially and and do a job eight times a week um so i was attractive for my audition and then you know, we kind of had the reverse experience with Spring Awakening, where we were this young group and we had a lot of energy coming at us from the outside that was not negative, not extremely negative. It was extremely positive. Um, and it, but the, you sort of have to do the same thing where you have to build a little bubble around yourselves and and do your show for the audience and for yourself and kind of shut out the noise of whatever that reception is. And so I, I learned a lot about, about, you know, being present with your castmates and not paying attention to what happens on the outside from that experience. I, yeah, I did an interview with Jonathan for the drama desk a few years ago, and we talked about both of those things. And I remember you also said that when you did Hamilton, that the director, Tommy Kale said, um, you know, he would have a ritual of saying, you know, despite all the insanity at the stage door and whatever, everything that's going on outside, you just, once you, once the door is closed, you're here to do the show. (laughs) Exactly. He would, he called it, yeah, the sacred space, sacred safe space. Um, Because I mean, with with Hamilton, I mean, that was like really insane. That was like mobs of people outside the theater. And then it was, it was like, it's 10 different famous people from all, I mean, at least 10 every night on the stage after the show, uh, weeping. Uh, it was such a, that was such a, <laughs> such a, such an extraordinary experience when it came to like outside energy. And that company really was mind blowing at, at staying connected and staying together and, and just believing in and delivering the show and not letting the hype to take take them over i mean it really it really was amazing to watch and again i did i did feel like i watched that more than i even experienced it because i i was such a such a voyeuristic presence in that theater as, as king george the third uh you have uh mentioned that getting on your bike and being able to see the best theater in the world is <laughs> something that has kept you in new york and you've been able to really balance uh, a Hollywood presence uh, uh, and a New York presence mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, uh, you know, explain to us the the different the different types of loves between film and television and and theater for you? Mm. 
Well, a theater is always my my deepest, biggest love without without question. Um, this is the thing that like ignites some like deep primal passion. Uh, and I love acting. And I really do enjoy the kind of the intimacy. It's sort of like kind of like a I'm I'm a creature of habit as well. I I I I find myself doing the same thing and being drawn to do the same thing all the time. And so sort of as a as a meditation theater just sort of aligns with my natural personality that you get to do the same thing every day and slowly chip away and refine it. And the big challenge for me in um, film and television is that it's something new every day. So that, that, that is the meditation for me in that. And I find that more difficult to, to show up and you have one shot to do that scene that day, and then you'll never do it again. <laughs> and it really keeps me on my toes and it really keeps me sharp and it really keeps me thinking. And it's really hard. Uh, it's as far as like acting, I, I love a rehearsal process. I love a long run. I'm like in my, in my happiest state right now with this merrily run. And then knowing that we're going to get to do it on Broadway uh, again, um, this, this is the thing that makes me the happiest. And and the the film and television really works a different muscle for me that that's also really helpful for my my personal growth as a as an actor and that you know it's different locations and uh, lots of different types of characters and um you know on the on the matrix g- getting to live in berlin for 6 months and experience a different culture uh, was incredible. And, and even like on, on the matrix, for example, getting to learn how to do fight choreography and learn like the basics of Kung Fu and all of that, that there was like a working with, with Lana Wachowski was, was she doesn't rehearse really at all. And she doesn't really tell you, um, what she wants. And she's, she loves this this like in the moment discovery while the cameras are rolling. And I had such a primal, my body, it was like a body first experience (laughs) full of adrenaline. And uh, I like, I busted open parts of myself that I I didn't know that I had on that one. Um, And so, yeah, it's like, you know, technically it's that, that, that difference of, of getting, that, you know, to, to do something once and never again, as opposed to getting the chance to do it over and over again, there's that. And then, and then there's just the, the, the gifts of, of getting to work with all different kinds of people and all different kinds of brains and many different styles and in many different places that excite me. Well, I was ask- uh, a, a, a question I wanted to ask was, uh, <clears throat> let's say you're in Bed Bath & Beyond and you go to the front desk and you say, uh, look, I'm looking for a new pillow. Uh, where can I find them? Does somebody say, my God, you were Kristoff and Frozen. <laughs> Have you been recognized by your voice because of that? Oh, wow. You know what? I haven't been. Okay. There's no still one's time. Said, like, no one's ever said <laughs> that voice. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. No, I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever been. That's a good question. I don't think I've ever been recognized from my voice. Okay, but, there's still but, time. Uh, the big question <laughs> is. Now that I say it, I'm now remembering an interaction I had 
at, at like a, it was a coffee shop a year or two ago <laughs> with someone I was ordering and they I think that might have happened actually well I don't think they could place it though but they were like I know your voice from somewhere but I actually don't even know if it was from Frozen it might have been <laughs> uh, I have to ask you the question then are, are reindeers better than people <laughs> uh, I, mean, uh, I, some, some I mean between between uh, the Matrix and and Frozen uh, uh, such different experiences than the stage where on the stage you, you sort of can uh, can uh, visualize and live that uh, final product there but you know when you're voicing for Frozen or even acting in, in the Matrix and the rest of it goes away and every, everything is done quote unquote in post yeah. uh, has anything really surprised you when you see the final product always I'm always surprised um yeah, because you just you're kind of in a vacuum uh, on set. You never really know what it's going to look like or feel like. It just completely it's like you're in a cornfield and the director is in a helicopter that uh, David Fincher would use this analogy like like you're in a cornfield and they're in a helicopter above you telling you how to get out. of it. <laughs> you just can't see the forest through the trees. Um because because of course you can't because you're being you're the one being filmed you're not seeing the the final product and there's an element of that to theater uh because you can't actually see the thing that you're in um but at the same time like just just in on a practical level i mean i i on a on a film set i really live for the time between action and cut but the reality is that time at 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 most is several minutes um, and, and when you get to do a play or a musical, you know, it's it's about two and a half with Merrily, it's two and a half hours between action and cut. And so uh, the, 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 the gift of being able to just lose yourself in that in that time and and spend all of that time acting is is such an opportunity for growth um, and evolution and expression and. It really is. It really is such a gift. I recently sent Jonathan a photo. I was at uh, I was getting the subway and there's a at 49th and 7th. There's a huge billboard for his new movie, Knock at the Cabin. And the cool thing is, is it's basically on the back of the Winter Garden Theater or the, the building right next to it. So um, on that side, there's Jonathan's movie. And on the other side, there's a huge billboard for the music man with his beloved Sutton Foster. <laughs> Sutton and I are sharing a building. <laughs> oh, my God. Jonathan, if you could uh, do one show with Sutton, what would it be? Oh, wow. <laughs> I would love to. Well, I mean, my first instinct is I'd love to do a new musical with Sutton. Uh -huh. Good for you. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to create something with her from the ground up and just watch her inside of that process. And she had a string there where she did a bunch of original musicals in a row. And then the last, you know, from Anything Goes to Violet to... Music man, she's done a bunch of of revivals in a row. So I'd be I'd be interested to to roll up my sleeves and get in to something original with Sutton. But let me see, let something that's not original. What would I do with Sutton? I'd love to do something. I don't know where it was like heated. 
something really intense <laughs> with her. What would it be? So many possibilities. So many possibilities. Uh, meditate on that and get back to you. I can't fine. think of it. We understand. Oh, that, that leaves us open to uh, talking with you again after Merrily opens on Broadway. So I'm all for that. Wonderful. So, so, <laughs> so definitely we'll have to uh, chat, chat more about that. So Jonathan Groff is uh, down at New York Theater Workshop for another two weeks or so uh, doing his... Uh, uh, interpretation uh, <laughs> of Franklin Shepard. We won't ask you to do Franklin Shepard Inc. right now. It is Sunday morning and you have it warmed up. I could do. I could definitely do my part in that because I just sit there in silence. Right. That's right. <laughs> and those lyrics would be easy to remember right now for me. It doesn't play well on an audio format. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. We really appreciate uh, speaking with you once again. Thank you. Great to talk to you all. Have a have a wonderful Sunday. Okay, let's uh, get into our review section. Peter, you got over to the Samuel J. Friedman Theater to see the collaboration. Tell us, what do you think about these two artists being portrayed as artists? Yeah, uh, one is Andy Warhol and the other is uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, And um, the problem (laughs) um, for Andy Warhol is that um, he's 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 getting a little older now. He's had that terrible experience where he's almost killed by that crazed uh, woman, and um, we actually do get to see how much she ravaged him uh, as the play goes on, because he does take off his shirt and shows us exactly what happened to him. I don't know if this is historically accurate. If every slash uh, is exactly what happened with Warhol, but it is pretty gruesome to see. But um, he's he's older, he's slower, and um, it, it suggested that he work with uh, this new up-and-coming artist. And of course, there's going to be conflict because we're talking about the old guard and the new guard. So uh, it's funny that the new guard became the old guard rather quickly, but that's what happens in life. So, so that's the conflict. And we're wondering if they're ever going to be able to get along, if they're going to be able to do any type of work together, if it's going to amount to anything, if it's going to... Um, be worthwhile both artistically and financially and so that's the conflict uh it's not a great role for i'm sorry um andy warhol it's not a great role for paul bettany um he certainly does it well he certainly looks the part but the thing is of course that because he's the older and tired um there's no question that this young turk this uh full of energy pup is going to uh, be able to steal the show this is a phenomenal performance by jeremy pope now we certainly admired him in uh the the temptations musical we certainly admired him in choir boy but whoa whoa, this is the apotheosis of what we've seen. He really grabs this part. I mean, he's all over the place. And of course, playing somebody who is addicted to heroin uh, certainly allows him some opportunities to uh, bounce off the wall, so to speak. And uh, and that's really impressive. 
the play starts off very, very slowly. And um, needless to say, Linda was not there for act two. But <laughs> the second act really percolates. And I'm sorry that she didn't stay. Uh, because that's where things really get going. I think the play would have benefited not by being a two-act play, by, uh, but a 90-minute play if we could get to the meat of the matter much sooner when they really lock horns and uh, they really, um, and he really, Andy Warhol really becomes terribly disappointed in what this man is becoming. There's a very powerful scene involving drug use, very powerful. Not what you think from what I'm saying. I'm being purposely um, evasive here, but a very powerful scene. So that works. So don't be like Linda. Stay if you're going, uh, because that second act does make uh, the first act that's a little on the dull side worthwhile. So the collaboration has been extended. Uh, this week they extended it through February 5th, gave it another week. So you have just about a month to go check it out at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater. Michael, you got over to the Hayes to see Between Riverside and Crazy. So tell us about this. Yeah, I was a little late because uh, I don't know when the show opened. There was just so much happening that I could not schedule it. Uh, So I was really happy that I caught up with it because this reaffirmed my opinion that Stephen Adley Gerges is really one of my absolute favorite current playwrights. Um, I, I don't I've never seen anything that he wrote that I didn't love. And I also love the fact that he's very versatile in terms of style. I mean, there's a similarity, of course, between all of his plays, but some of them are um, so much darker than others. Uh, this is one of the lighter ones, I would say, although it certainly has its dark moments. Uh, but for example, Jesus Hop the A Train. Um, that leaps to mind as one of his plays that's a, that's a lot more dark and maybe serious, if that's the right word to use, than this one. Whereas Between Riverside and Crazy, a lot of it I would describe as, an, as a complete out-and-out comedy. And the audience response at the performance I saw was absolutely over the top. It was so well written to begin with and so well directed by Austin Pendleton with this amazing cast led by Stephen McKinley Henderson uh, in what might be the role of his lifetime, (laughs) Uh, at least uh, from what I've seen him do on stage anyway. Um, I did not get to see Michael Rispoli. He was out uh, and his role of Lieutenant Carroll was played by somebody named J. Anthony Crane, who was excellent. Also, there's a new woman playing the very meaty role of the church lady. Um, and her name is Maria Cristina Oliveras. But the entire cast, uh, Victor Almanzar, Elizabeth Canavan, Rosal Colon, common um, in what I would say is a really, really excellent, very skilled performance uh, for someone who uh, has no or little stage experience in this kind of a this kind of a play. Um, And then uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson, as I said, and uh, Maria Cristina Oliveras. Uh, It really it's a it's a it was wonderful when I saw that play off Broadway years ago, and I'm glad it made it to Broadway uh, because I think that Stephen Adley Gerges is someone who should be on Broadway mm-hmm. as often as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and and I'm happy to say um, that I think he writes in a way that's very entertaining and very accessible to 
a mass audience, uh, which is not necessarily true uh, of of every of every playwright. I mean, uh, that that's a that's a great talent in itself. Um, we can think of other playwrights who have niche audiences uh, just because of the way uh, that they write and the style that they write in. But I don't think that's true of Stephen Adley Gerges. I think it's very, very accessible and and has a great broad appeal. So I was delighted that I caught up with that. I would not have wanted to miss this production. All right. And uh, others can see it through February 12th, so they won't see it. They won't miss it as well. Mm-hmm. You can check out Between Riverside and Crazy. Uh, Peter, uh, you got Liz Calloway's new album, To Steve With Love. Liz Calloway uh, celebrates Stephen Sondheim. And uh, tell us about it. Well, um, Liz Calloway's voice in uh, on the original cast album of Baby is the finest sound that has ever come out of my speakers. So I've been a fan uh, for a long time. Um, Did you see her merrily? Oh, sure. Um, twice, in fact. But, <laughs> you know, here's, that's that's certainly an interesting part. But what I want to bring up is that um, it's often been said that when a person does a cabaret act, if you come into that act knowing nothing about that person, by the time you leave, you should know everything about that person. Yeah. And Liz Calloway succeeds mightily in this area. Now, the recording is simply not one Sondheim song after another. No, no, no. It is her live performance that she did. And um, so you hear the audience reaction and you hear um, the patter. And the patter is extraordinarily good. Funny, back in 1965, Nancy Wilson did a a song that Martin Charnin wrote called Don't Talk just sing about the fact that um, patter is the toughest thing for a singer to do, because while they may have great ability in, in delivering a song, well, yeah, in between, they're not as good. Well, Liz Calloway certainly rises to the occasion. No question about that. She starts telling you about her childhood. She tells you about how she got interested in musical theater. It's a surprising thing to hear what her first Broadway show um, that she saw was very surprising. And her parents took it to it. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want you to hear the album. But nevertheless, it's not one you would expect. However, there is a nice um, synchronicity and symmetry um, between uh, that show and the show that she wound up being in that certainly uh, cemented her relationship with Stephen Sondheim. It really um, was a long-term relationship in terms of she always seemed to show up and uh, and do his songs here, there, and everywhere for different reasons. I mean, she was um, in the Follies in concert, that famous um, at Avery Fisher Hall, that um, and it was really quite thrilling for her. Needless to say, it's thrilling for us, those of us who were be who were there. But um, th- th- she did wind up intersecting uh, with Stephen Sondheim's life many times. So, of course, all of these um, intersections are interspersed with her singing, of course, the songs. And um, but it's nice, like for example, Broadway Baby. She just doesn't start and end the song. In between, she tells you um, how she became a Broadway baby, and it's it's most entertaining. So. So um, uh, What More Do I Need is a song that perhaps um, some people don't know. Uh, it's easier to know now because it was Saturday night and Saturday night has gotten a couple of recordings as the years have gone on. But she was the one who brought it to everyone's attention when uh, she had to do a Stephen Sondheim evening for the Whitney Museum. And so it was really something to hear that song. And of course, by that point in time, 
we had already heard Merrily We Roll Along, and we realized that the song that uh, Charlie and Frank are auditioning for Joe Josephson, who wants to live in New York, is essentially a rewiring of uh, what more do I need? Uh, because that's what it's about. It's about uh, living in the city and how difficult the city can be. But if you're there, that's, uh, what, well, what more do I need? So that's uh, quite nice. A terrific rendition of the Miller song um, is something. But what I really liked her doing was, um, what do we do we fly? Uh, sometimes called the plane song uh, from Do I Hear a Waltz? And uh, I, I hope the song type would approve because, uh, of course, it has music by Richard Rogers, and famously they did not get along. But uh, the song is terrific, and uh, certainly her backup musicians help her on that, which brings up another point. Um, she introduces her musicians early on, and the response that Alex Rybeck gets is so wonderful. He is one of our terrific pianists, one of the great accompanists, a, a great music man, and it was so nice to hear him get his due when she introduced him because he has been around for so long in the best sense of the word, uh, accompanying really great people. And uh, certainly Liz Calloway fits into that category of great people. Um, as is so many times the case in, in um, presentations like this, songs are linked that um, weren't necessarily linked in when they started. So Not While I'm Around uh, is matched with uh, Now You Know, uh, which is great fun. So um, um, also, you know, passion is uh, a that a lot of people don't um, mention as um, one of their favorite song times, but certainly Loving You is a wonderful song, and um, it's another one that she uh, reminds us. Well, um, she also uh, told us um, in her liner notes that um, when she was growing up, she was a big fan of um, Another Hundred People from Company, and what happens here is she doesn't sing quite Another Hundred People. She sings Another Hundred lyrics. Uh, Lauren Meyer um, became the lyricist here and um, rewrote uh, to fit a specific situation about performing. And it's great fun to hear that. And um, I don't know if Sondheim ever heard, but I think he'd be uh, pleased. And um, it, it seems to conclude with our time, uh, which is a great way to conclude anything. It certainly concludes merrily we roll along. But you know, uh, Cabaret, there's always an encore. And the encore um, says, with so little to be sure of, from anyone can whistle. Oh, there's plenty to be sure of in this album. Plenty to be sure of with Liz Calloway, one of our most gifted entertainers. And we're all in her debt for doing this um, concert and doing this album so that we, uh, who missed it, Michael didn't, I did. Um, it's, uh, um, I, I was having a play done, so I couldn't be there. Um, but uh, certainly... Liz Calloway celebrates Sondheim is the subtitle, and yes, indeed, she does. Okay. So we'll have a link in the show notes to uh, an Amazon link so where you can pick up Liz's album to Steve with Love. Yeah, as I'm sure I said at the time, that truly was one of the best cabaret shows I've ever seen in my life. I'm not surprised. And I'm so glad that she's preserved it as a recording. Mm -hmm. Michael, any? do you recall if there were any video cameras there? Well, I think I, 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 my impression is that everything there is uh, recorded archivally at Fifty Four Below. I might be wrong about that, uh, but I would, I, I would not imagine that Liz would have allowed it to happen without uh, having it videoed. We'll have to ask her about that when we see her. <laughs> All right, Michael, you also got over to Birdland to see Marilyn May's. Uh, uh, 
welcoming in the new year, saying goodbye to the old year at Birdland. So tell us about it. Yeah, I had a good cabaret week because it started out on Sunday night with the final performance in Marilyn's uh, most recent gig at at Birdland. She was there for on New Year's Eve and a, a day or two before, and then after I went on New Year's Day night at nine thirty. And uh, you know this uh, this showed me why. Um, I guess we all have FOMO to to an extent, fear of missing out. And of course, you can't see everything. So you have yep. to just kind of hope that you're there, you know, for some, things that are really special. I have seen Marilyn so often recently. I didn't have to go to this one, but I'm so glad I did because I swear I think it was it was the best performance mm. that I have seen her give over in in recent years she was absolutely on fire um her voice itself was in tip-top condition not that it's ever bad but you know i mean you know there were some variations and she was absolutely on top of it um she had uh a, a saxophonist in in the audience who uh she didn't know was going to be there so she invited him up and he played with her on one number the patter was was delightful more delightful than ever the audience response was through the roof and it, it just i i would have really been sorry if i'd missed it so that was that was amazing and she um i think this was her last performance in new york until um her scheduled appearance at carnegie hall with the new york pops in march so she um has been talking about that recently and and uh, that's something for you to all put on your calendar because that could be an amazing amazing night um but then on thursday and friday i i had a, another wonderful cabaret experience because i went to see ben jones's two different programs that he did at chelsea table and stage on thursday night he did his show titled i think i'm in love and on uh, Friday night, he did a show titled, I think we should see other people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there again, he's really got it all. His voice is a phenomenal, phenomenal tenor with unbelievable stratospheric high notes, uh, but also a, a beautiful middle and lower register as well. And he's great looking and his and he's so funny on top of. Of all of that, I, I actually brought Robbie Roselle with me as my guest who had not seen him. And Robbie said, well, I'm a fan now uh, because we were discussing about there aren't that many people who have um, all all of those qualities uh, that they can bring to a show. And he definitely did. Uh, he um, I, I, one of the highlights which was uh, I had seen the second show previously at 54 Below. Uh, the I think I should see other people. One of the highlights was this mashup of uh, with every breath I take, the Cy Coleman, David Zippel song from City of Angels with um, Losing My Mind from Follies. And you this and Ben, we spoke with him afterwards and he credited all to his magnificent musical director, pianist Ron Abel, who came up with the whole thing. And they're not two songs you wouldn't maybe necessarily think of putting together because they're by two different authors or whatever, uh, two different composers and lyricists, but uh, three different, actually. <laughs> um, but um, 
it just worked like a charm. And I have to say uh, uh, tangentially that um, I think David Zippel, I mean, I'm not sure how much he's personally responsible for it, but it seems like he has done a good job of getting that song out there uh, with every breath I take, uh, because I, I know um, Nancy Lamott recorded it years ago. And I, I, I know David was instrumental in that one, but it seems like a lot of people do it, which is fine with me because it's a really, oh, really, song. really great <clears throat> modern uh Torch song or, or a ballad, not quite a torch song, but uh, uh, and written so beautifully in, in a, an older jazz style mm-hmm. by Cy Coleman, who you know, who did that better than anyone. Anyway. Uh, and but the lyrics are also sound like they could have been written in the 50s, uh, you know, or they could have been written yesterday because they're they're just a wonderful combination. And uh, my tangential comment is that is um, one of the selections on uh, one of the albums that I've been listening to recently, which is Melissa Errico out of the dark, the film noir project. Um, And indeed, I think that is the only uh, musical theater song on the album. She also does angel eyes, uh, the bad and the beautiful uh, farewell, my lovely. Blame it on my youth. Uh, Laura, that that song from the film. Uh, it's uh, the man that got away uh, from Stars Born. But yeah, her, the only show song is with every breath I take. And this is a wonderful album with the arrangements are all by Ted Firth and uh, executive produced by Kurt Deutsch. So that's an, an album that I would put on my list uh, along with the Liz Calloway album that peter mentioned Hmm. so that is uh really wonderful you got to see some good cabaret this week Mm. and uh it seems like a good time to wrap it up for today before we move on to our trivia and musical moment i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to apple podcast for you of course you don't have to listen to us on apple podcasts there's many ways to get us spotify iHeartRadio, tune in stitcher google play anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast you'll find broadway radio's offerings Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including two very important videos that Michael's going to talk about in the uh, musical moment. But for right now, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? A Tony Winnie lyricist actually wrote a song with his longtime partner, which they called Good Thing Going. It, too, ended with Going, Going, Gone. Some years before Sondheim wrote his song, this famous team wrote it for a musical, but eventually dropped the song. It would be have been sung by a star who would go on to win a Tony. Who wrote the song? From what show? Who was the Tony winning star? Well, the answer is good thing going was the last line going, going, gone was Fred Ebb's lyric to John Kander's music, of course, for a song intended for the act the 1977 musical for which Liza Minnelli won a Tony. It's a fascinating song because uh, Fred Ebb even goes into a different direction because he has a, a C-section in the middle of the song. Where it's actually a flashback where she's um, her boyfriend is moving out and she sings, going, 
must you be going? Uh, it's pretty fascinating. I, I'm not saying that Sondheim knew about this. I don't know if he and Fred Ebb ever talked about it. If Fred Ebb said, Steve, <laughs> <laughs> I did that. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, if, if I run to John Kander, I'll see if, uh, if uh, he can tell me. But anyway, uh, that's the answer. And who knew it? Well, for the second week in a row, Juliet Green came in first, followed by Paul Whitty. Tony Janicki, still stuck and mired in third place. Mike Meany, Brigadude, Sean Logan, and Isaac Blevins. This week's question. It, not he, not she, it is something that appears in the first scene of the musical and is never seen again. And yet, it's the title of the musical. <laughs> What's the item for which the show is named? <laughs> if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, lots of choose from, uh, from Jonathan Groff's oeuvre. But our opener is uh, an audio excerpt from his legendary performance of Anything Goes, which he did for MCC Theater's miscast benefit uh, about 10 years ago. Um, we uh, we put the audio as the opener for our, for our podcast today, but we're also including a link to the YouTube video, which currently has 2.9 million views. Wow. <laughs> and wow. when you see it, uh, if you haven't already seen it, you'll, you'll understand why it's so popular because it's just delightful. Uh, this was something that Jonathan did in tribute to his beloved Sutton Foster, and it just turned out spectacularly well. And the closer is um, something really special. Uh, Jonathan had sung, I Got Lost in His Arms, uh, from Annie Get Your Gun. I saw him do it, heard him do it uh, in a concert that he did at what was then called the, uh, well, I'm not sure what it was called, at the, but the Appel Room uh, up at Columbus Circle. Uh, but he also did it uh, about 10 years ago in a uh, personal appearance Q&A thing that he did at the current theater in San Francisco. Um, so there again, it's a YouTube video. And the description of it says, Jonathan Groff serenades audience members with I Got Lost in His Arms, a number from Irving Berlin's 1946 musical, Annie Get Your Gun, at Curran's Groundbreakers, A Conversation with Jonathan Groff. Um, so I think, uh, well, he does a beautiful, lovely job with it. And and some of us are... Um, pressuring, not pressuring, uh, urging <laughs> Jonathan yeah. to do an album uh, at some point. And if he does, maybe I, I would hope that this will be included on it. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't ask me just how it happens. I wish I knew I can't believe that it happened And still It's true I got lost In his arms And I had to stay It was dark 
dark in his arms and I lost my way from the dark came a voice and it seemed to say there you go there you go how I felt as I fell I just can't recall but his arms held me fast and it broke the fall and I said to my heart as it foolishly kept jumping all around I got lost but look what I found And I said to my heart As it foolishly kept jumping all around I got lost but look 